כבוד הרב מר דאטרה, כבוד חבר הכנסת הרב ליפמן, קהל נכבד, beloved friends. Thank you for making Elaine and myself feel so at home. First of all, we have so many English expats here, we certainly feel at home. Second of all, I thank you for the exception you are making, allowing me to speak in English. Chazal say that we say certain prayers in Aramaic because the Malachi Ashores don't understand Aramaic. I guarantee you they certainly don't understand my English, so I feel very free to speak. And thirdly, because once in a while, very, very rarely, you have in Beit Shemesh, once in a very rare while, a machloket. And any machloket makes me feel very much at home because that's where I've been for the last 22 years. And from this, Baruch Hashem, you don't die. This is par for the cause. I want to say what an enormous, enormous privilege it is to be with you in this great, great community of yours, this community of communities of yours, where there is such a strong sense of local community, where every single day a thousand acts of chesed take place that never make the newspaper headlines, because the only things that make the newspaper headlines are the one act in 10,000, which is not an act of chesed. But the truth is, HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't read the headlines. He reads the small print. And there is not one act of chesed that every one of you do that goes unnoticed and unrewarded. But I do want to say this. In case you ever feel that the tensions that happen here uh, can be depressing. I want to say something. I raise this very simple question. Why is it that we are all we get our name from Yaakov Avinu? We are B'nai Yisrael. If you were to choose an individual out of all the individuals in our history who would be the name associated with our people, would it be Yaakov? You would choose Avram Avinu, or you might choose Moshe Rabbeinu. You might choose anyone. Why Yaakov? And I think the simple answer, as opposed to the biological answer that all of his children remain within the fold, the spiritual answer, as we stand between Parshas Vayetzi and Vayishlach, is this, that Yaakov Avinu, of all the Avot, had his deepest epiphanies, his deepest encounters with a Karish Baruch Hu, alone, at the dead of night, far from home, when he felt alone and abandoned at a risk. And at those very moments, he saw the greatest visions that anyone ever saw. Sulam Mutzavartza, a ladder stretching between earth and heaven, and the lonely figure, the angel, who wrestled with him and gave him his name. We in Judaism know that when things sometimes seem dark, that is when great things are about to happen. I once, uh, I, was, I, I used to be chief rabbi of the Commonwealth, so that took me 
as it took Rabbi Jackson and uh, Robertson Frankie here, to Hong Kong. In 97, the Hong Kong was given by the Brits back to China. And whenever uh, we had an occasion like that, I would always visit the head of state, the new head of state. So we met, Elaine and I met Mr. Tung Chi Hua, who was the first Beijing chief executive of China, it of Hong Kong. It turned out very interestingly that he loved Jews, he loved Judaism, and he loved Medinat Yisrael. And he said to me, Rabbi Sachs, your people and my pe I, our people are very old. Our people are 5,000 years old in China, and your people are 6,000 years old. I didn't want to correct his arithmetic. He said, tell me, what I've always wanted to know is, what did you do for the first 1,000 years before you had kosher Chinese takeaways? <laughs> I said, Mr. Tung, you want to know what we did for the first 1,000 years? We complained about the food. <laughs> But I thought about this. How come Juda Jews and Judaism and China and Chinese lasted so long? And you probably know the answer. In Chinese, the ideogram for crisis also means opportunity. So when you know that every crisis is also an opportunity, you survive all the crises. I only know of one language that goes one better, and that is Ivrit. What is the Hebrew for crisis? Mashbeh. And what is a mashbeh? It was originally a birthing stool. And when you have a word like mashbeh, you know every crisis is merely chevleleida, the birth pangs of something new and something great. And I promise you that all the chevleleida, all the mashbeh that you have occasionally had, and which will soon, Bezrat Hashem, pass completely, all of that is just the birth pangs of something new and something very special that will happen here in Beit Shemesh and send rays of light throughout the Jewish world. And about that, anima amin bemunash lema. So I've been asked to say just a few words about Kiddush Hashem. What does it mean in the context of today, in the context of Medinite Israel, in the context of a sometimes deeply divided Jewish world? So let me begin with the concept of Kiddush Hashem itself. What does it mean? We find it classically in four different contexts. Number one, classically, the makar of the whole mitzvah, lo yechalulo et shem kadshi v'nikdashti b'toch b'nei Yisrael, ani Hashem mekadishchem. That, according to Rashi, is... According to Rashi, it's got nothing to do with the world outside. It is to sin b'mezid. If you sin b'shogeg, yesh takana, you bring a chatat, you do tshuva. But amazed, that is a chilul Hashem. According to Ibn Ezra, in b'nei aharon yedaber, the whole perek uh, of, of that perek of Vayikra is about avodat hakoanim. In other words, according to Ibn Ezra, Kiddush Hashem is specifically focused on Kohanim. Why? Because they are holy individuals. Their avodah is holy within Kedusha and the Beit HaMikdash. And therefore, they are expected to be role models of Kedusha. And therefore, when they break any law, any mitzvah, especially in addition to the chet 
prati, the individual chet that they commit by doing something they shouldn't do, there's also a chet klali, a general sin, because they have failed to be role models of what it is to be kadosh, to be holy. That is the first instance, and it's quite a limited concept. Then, second, the concept appears vastly expanded. In one book in particular, the book Sefer Yechezkel. Yechezkel Anavi speaks about Chilul Hashem in a completely new way. And he says this, when Bnei Yisrael go into Galut, that is Chilul Hashem. When Hashem punishes the people by giving them defeat and sending them into exile, it makes HaGarosh Baruch Hu look as if he is powerless to help them, and that is a Chilul Hashem. And that that in Yechezkel is carrying forward an idea we first encounter when Moshe Rabbeinu prays for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to forgive the people for Chet Egel, and he says, Lama Yomru Mitzrayim, how will it look to the world? And Yechezkel says that is what Golas looks like. It looks as if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is powerless to save his people. And when that happens, the question is, what will the world say? And that for him is this vast macrocosmic concept of Chilul Hashem. Then we come, as your Rav has already mentioned, to the tragic reality that in the days of Chazal, as codified by the entire discussion of Chilul Hashem, and as codified by the Rambam in Perik Chamishi of Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah, Kiddush Hashem means to be willing to die for a Kaddish Baruch to undergo martyrdom, to die al Kiddush Hashem. And the whole debate among Chazal is simply on what mitzvot and under what circumstances do we say Yehoreg va'al yavo, but that if you die al Kiddush Hashem, that means you are showing that Hashem matters to you. You love God, the love of God matters to you more than life itself. That is a Kiddush Hashem. But what a tragic phenomenon it was that Chazal knew that in their world, that the world didn't want to know about a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and the only way they found for sanctifying Hashem was to be willing to die for Hashem. Historically, the most remarkable transformation of that idea in our time, and it's a very moving one, was the collective decision of the Jewish people to say about all the victims of the Shoah that they died al-Kiddush Hashem. Because in every previous era when Jews died al-Kiddush Hashem, they had a choice, convert or die, transgress or die. In the Shoah, they had no choice at all. And therefore, when the Jewish people collectively said all the victims of the Shoah died, al-Kiddush Hashem, they said a very moving and beautiful and true thing. And then fourthly, as your Rav has mentioned, almost as a footnote, the Rambam mentions uh, on the basis of Gemara, Hashem, Adam gadol b'torah, mufusam b'chasidut dvarim she'abriyot maranenim acharav bishvilam. If somebody uh, well-known to be very righteous and very saintly does something that is unbecoming, even if it's not a sin, that is a chilul Hashem. 
And uh, Rambam gives an exa- examples of this. Diburo em abriot, eno benachat, veeno makablim besev eponim, yafot, elabal ktata vekas. And that is chilol Hashem, and when an individual acts in the opposite way, that is a kiddush Hashem. Now, these four dimensions seem to have nothing connecting them. And the question is, what is at the basis of them? To which we have to add one other element, which is very striking. Chilol Hashem is the only sin in the book for which there is no kapara in one's lifetime. Every other sin, there's kapara through tshuva, through Yom Kippur, through Yisurim, but Chilol Hashem, there is no such thing as kapara in your lifetime. So the question is, what is Kiddush Hashem? Is it one mitzvah among the Taryag, or has it got something special about which Chazal say there is no mitzvah that matters so much that if, God forbid, you break it, there's no kapara in your lifetime? I think we have to understand an absolute yesod, a fundamental principle of Torah here. And here it is. If we read the Torah carefully, we see that the Torah is the early history of Am Yisra. That's its subject, beginning, middle, and end, with one remarkable phenomenon. The Torah, which is about the Jewish people, does not begin with the Jewish people. It begins with four archetypal scenes of humanity as a whole. Adam v'chava, Kain v'hevel, Noah and the flood, Babel and its builders. And they have nothing to do with the Jewish people, but with humanity at all, as a whole. What is going on here? The short answer is this. Twice, at the beginning of human history, HaKadosh Baruch Hu attempts to establish a relationship with all humankind. The first was ontological. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says... The first relationship that God sought to establish is on the basis of what it is to be human. To be human is to be in the image and likeness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But that failed. First with Adam and Eve, then with Cain and Abel, then with the world. Full of violence. After the flood, HaKadosh Baruch Hu attempts a second relationship with all humanity. This time not ontological, but covenantal. The first chapter of Bereshit has the word Tov seven times. The ninth chapter of Bereshit has the word Brit seven times. It's all to do with the Brit B'nai Noach. And here the same phrase is used, but completely differently. Shofech Dam HaAdam but there is one big difference between Tzalem as it appears in Bereshis 9 than as it appears in Bereshis 1. In Bereshis 1, it is me who is in the image of God. In Bereshis 9, it is you who are in the image of God. It's the other person. And those were the two relationships HaKadosh Baruch Hu tried to establish with all humanity. And they both failed. And only after the failure of the second relationship, 
when the builders of Babel failed to recognize and honor the difference between heaven and earth by trying to build on earth a tower that reached heaven, it is only then that Hashem calls to Avram Avinu and the whole focus of the Torah moves from all of humanity to one man, to one marriage, to Avram and Sarah, to one family, and eventually to one nation. Why? Because having failed to establish a relationship with all humanity, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Avram Avinu, I want you and your children to be the bearers of my presence to the world. As it says many, several times in Bereshit, five times in Bereshit, through you my light will be refracted into the world. Or to put it another way, there are two ways of teaching anything. Number one, by general rules, and number two, by specific examples. Having failed to reach humanity through specific rules, Hashem says, I will try the second way, by a living example. Let Avram Avinu and his children be living examples of what it is to be people who live in my image, people who live by my will. And that, in an extraordinary way, actually happened then and now. Here is Avram Avinu, a person who lives apart, alone, by his own light. Avram Ivory. He is on one side, the whole of the world is on the other side. He fights for his neighbors, he prays for his neighbors, but he stays true to himself. And what do his neighbors say? They say to this man, who has kept himself separate, Nasi Elohim Atabatochen. And that is the power of Avram to be a Kiddush Hashem. Even the Bnei Ches, even the Hittites, recognized Nesi Elohim Ata And so it was in history. I mean, I still find myself awestruck by the fact that, that 2.4 billion Christians, 1.6 billion Muslims, and a few of us, most of whom, by the looks of it, are here this evening. <laughs> More than half the population of the world today consider themselves spiritual descendants of Avram Avinu. Here is a man who ruled no empire, performed no miracles, commanded no army, delivered no great prophecy, and yet, without the slightest shadow of doubt, was the most influential human being that ever lived, and his influence today is greater than it ever was. And that is the power of Kiddush Hashem, to walk according to Hashem's call, to walk humbly in God's way and to teach your children to do Justice and, and charity, that is something that can change the world. And we see through the history of what they call Abrahamic monotheism, how Avram Avinu actually did this. And I have to tell you that that is what defines us as Jews. 
You want the simple definition of what it is to be a Jew? Every one of us is a shagriya shalakadosh baruchu ba'olamo. Every one of us is God's ambassador to the world. And that is what Moshe Rabbeinu meant when he said, That's what he meant when he said, That is what he said. And it's true. And it really is true. And that is what Kiddush Hashem means. The word Shem means not just a name, but a reputation. In Hebrew and in English, we use exactly the same concept. Shem Tov. To have a good name means to have a good reputation. Shem means not God as he is in himself, but Hashem as he is perceived by the rest of humanity. And whenever we do things that make humanity think well of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, that is Kiddush Hashem. And when the opposite happens, that is Chilul Hashem. And that is why the command begins by being addressed first and foremost to the Kohanim. They had to behave in an exemplary way, and subsequently, after Churban Beit HaMikdash, Churban Beit Sheni, that passed, that role of being role models, passed from uh, Kohanim to Talmidei Chachamim, and it is also the thing that makes us Am Yisrael as a whole. The Svorno says, on the phrase, Mamlechet Kohanim, he says that means we are to the rest of the world what the Kohanim are to Israel. We are the exemplars of what it is to be Kedusha. But that is very difficult. And it is difficult for precisely, or for 2,000 years it was very difficult, for precisely the reason Yechezkel Hanavi said. Because in Galut, in Chutzlaretz, even in Holy St. John's Wood, where Elaine and I enjoyed life so much for 22 years, however badly my football team is doing against Manchester United <laughs> at this particular moment, even in the most beautiful of all gilded galut, we are powerless. And when we are powerless, we're a small minority, we make a lot of noise, we make up for our lack of numbers by sheer volume, but the fact is that when we are powerless to shape our own destiny. It is as if Kevayachol, HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself, is powerless. And for that reason, the Chazal said in one of the most daring of their remarks in, in, in the Bavli, that when Jews are in Golas, HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself weeps. And that reached its ultimate in the Shoah, in the Warsaw Ghetto. The Piazhnerov, writing his drashot as one by one, the members of his family are taken from him to Treblinka, and he writes his great work, Eish Kodesh. He says, Hashem is retreating into his innermost chambers and weeping. And if one drop of Hashem's tears were to escape, it would destroy the world which is why the creation of Medinat Yisrael was not just a political event of the most immense consequence. It was also the greatest Kiddush Hashem in 2,000 years of Jewish history. Because the birth of Medinat Yisrael, as it were, Kevayachol, brought the Shekhinah out of Galut and back 
into the Rishut HaRabim. And therefore, every single Jew, and I heard exactly what you said, who lives in Medinat Yisrael is part of the great mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, which is etzem kiyumashel ha-Medina. The mere fact that there is a Medinat Yisrael is itself a Kiddush Hashem of the highest order. And the truth is that just as you only read the bad news in the newspapers about Israel, you, so you only read the bad news when you read the English papers. But the truth is, and maybe this doesn't come through because it isn't articulated as loudly as it should be, the world recognizes this. You may see Israel criticize the truth. The honest truth is when you're talking to political leaders in the West, they all know that Medinat Yisrael is a human miracle like which there is no other. The way that it has taken a barren land and make it green again. The way it has taken the language of the Bible, make it speak again. The way it has taken a scattered, shattered people and make it live again. This is a miracle everyone truly sees. And it is the sustained Kiddush Hashem that is Israel. I mentioned Mr. Tung Shi Wai in Hong Kong. And let me mention him one more time. He said, he, uh, when I first met him, he said he wanted to come to Israel, which he did, to see how to make a high-tech economy, the head of Hong Kong. So when he announced this intention, I came, and always I used to meet regularly Shagria Medina to Israel for breakfast, I said, Kvoda Shagria, I want you to go to Mr. Shimon Peres, who was that time Rosh Hashanah, and tell him, his dream was that one day, maybe, Israel would become the Hong Kong of the Middle East. Today, Hong Kong dreams maybe one day we will become the Israel of the Far East. That is a small measure of Israel's achievement. And when I speak to non-Jews about Israel, I'm very straight and they understand this very simply. If we were to identify the five problems that will dominate history in the 21st century, it is absolutely clear what they are. Number one, climate change, global warming, although in, Israel, in England we're praying they'd send a little global warming in our direction. <laughs> Secondly, the growing disparity between first world economies and third world economies. Number three, in Britain, in Europe, in America, the problem of asylum seekers. Number four, the problem of terror, which is now a global problem. And the problem five, the problem of the Arab Spring. How do you bring democracy to a part of the world that never knew democracy? Israel has achieved miracles in all those five areas. It is the only country in terms of climate change which hasn't deforested but planted forests. Israel was the only country in the world that had more trees at the end of the 20th century than it had at the beginning of the 20th century. Israel is the world's single greatest example of a third world economy that became a cutting edge first world economy. As for asylum seekers, Israel took people from 103 different countries talking 82 different languages, usually all at once, and turned them into Goy Echad Ba'aretz, one nation on earth. In terms of terror, Israel has always led the world, and any country that suffers the risk of terror 
comes to Israel and its experts for advice. And finally, in terms of bringing democracy to a part of the world that never knew it, Israel not only brought democracy, but what I call hyper-democracy, uh, if you can imagine such a thing. In all these things, Israel has been and continues to be a Kiddush Hashem. However, we are all heirs of history. And something happened, not now, something happened 200 years ago in 19th century in Europe, and we are still paying the price for it today. It happened because of one of the greatest crises the Jewish people ever faced. Here was the crisis. French Revolution, the birth of democracy, rationalism, the Enlightenment. And throughout Europe, throughout enlightened, scientific, rationalistic Europe, country after country seemed to offer Jews, for the first time, freedom and equality as citizens of the new nation-states of Europe. But at that very moment, there was born that phenomenon that was initially had no name. Eventually, in 1879, somebody gave it a name, anti-Semitism, racial anti-Semitism. That began in Europe in the 19th century, at the very time that Europe was promising that a rational age would put an end to the prejudices of the past. At that very moment, those prejudices mutated and came back in a form more virulent than they have ever had. And the result was that in one country after another, Jews found themselves faced with the following choice. You want to be part of Jew Europe? Then stop being Jews. At least don't be Jews in public. Become, if I can use the phrase, secular Marana. Hidden Jews who hid their Jewishness. If you want to be part of us, give up what makes you different and become Frenchmen or Germans of the Jewish persuasion. At that point, a split began in the Jewish people, which still survives to this day. There were Jews who said, yes, we want to be part of the European nation state, and if that means giving up much of our faith and practice as Jews, we will do so. They became assimilated. They became very secular. And there were other Jews who said, if that is the deal you are offering us, we prefer to decline the bargain. We will stay Jewish, but we will turn our back on the Europe that so discriminates against us. At that moment, a rift was created in Am Yisrael. But it was not created by Am Yisrael. That is the important thing. It was created by a seemingly tolerant but actually viciously anti-Semitic France, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Poland, and Russia. And then there came the Shoah. It all ended in the worst crime against humanity since human beings first set foot on earth. And still we weep and still we limp. However, Strange are the ways of providence. And it was precisely that division of the Jewish world into two that led to the two 
distinct miracles of Jewish life after the Shoah. First of all, it was precisely those deeply assimilated and highly secular Jews, like Moses Hess, like Judah Leipinska, like Theodor Herzl, completely assimilated Jews, who became the driving force behind secular Zionism, which itself was the a driving force in the first post-Holocaust Jewish miracle, the creation of Benidat Yisrael, and the rebirth of Jewish sovereignty after 2,000 years. Who knows whether we would have had Medinat Israel without that talich shel chilun, without that secularization that led Herzl to understand that you need to act in the political arena and not just in the Beit Knesset. On the other hand, it was those deeply religious, highly segregated Jews of whom all that remained after the Shoah was an Ud Mutsalmeesh, a brand plucked from the burning, a mere handful. It was those people from the Hasidic movements and the Yeshivot who created the second miracle of our time, the rebirth of Torah Yisrael, which today flourishes in Israel and the United States in virtually every Jewish community. Today, there are more Jews learning in Yeshiva than at any previous time in the whole of Jewish history, more than in the great age of Mir and Ponovish and Volozhin, more even than in the days of Surah and Pombadita, from which came Talmud Bavli. These were two extraordinary miracles, the rebirth of Medinat Yisrael and the rebirth of Torah Yisrael. And we owe that to that deep division between those two groups of Jews, each of whom performed a specific function in the redemption and renaissance of the Jewish people after the Shoah. These were miracles. And the truth is, we are all in the debt of those individuals. However, every generation has its seekers and its search, its particular mitzvah. And having now reclaimed and rebuilt Medina Yisrael, having now reclaimed and rebuilt the Ola Shel Torah, now a new challenge faces all of us in the Jewish world, but particularly those who live here in Israel. And the challenge is simply this, and it is so obvious that it hardly needs stating. We went as a people three times into Galut. Number one, in the days of Yosef, and his brothers. Number two, after Churban Bayit Rishon. Number three, after Churban Bayit Sheni. And each time for the same reason. In the first days of the first temple after Amir, three kings, Shaul, David, Shlomo, the kingdom split in two. And always Israel was a tiny country surrounded by large empires. And to survive as one nation on earth was difficult, but to survive as two was impossible, and hence the destruction of the loss of the northern kingdom and then the destruction of the Bayit Rishon and Galut Bavel. In Bayit Sheni, the Jewish people were so factionalized that the eyewitness accounts tell us that Jews were more intent in besieged Jerusalem in fighting one another than in fighting the troops of Vespasian and Titus outside. It all came 
from that problem that first began with Yosef and his brothers, Lo Yachlu Dabro Shalom. Now, I find it extraordinary that Jews were attacked by the greatest superpowers human history has ever known. Egypt of the Pharaohs, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, the medieval empires of Christianity and Islam, all the way to the Third Reich and the Soviet Union. Every one of those superpowers has been consigned to history and our tiny people can still stand and sing Am Yisrael Chai. There only ever was one people capable, chas v'shalom, of defeating the Jewish people, and that is the Jewish people. So what then is our situation today? We have a very strong secular public. We have a very strong religious public, but very little connection between them. There is a rare form of cerebral lesion, of brain damage, in which the right and left hemispheres of the brain are both intact. But the connection between them, I'm not a medic, I think it's called the corpus callosum, am I right? The connection between them is broken. The result is dysfunction of the personality. I think the Jewish people sometimes seems to me as if we're collectively suffering from this cerebral lesion. Friends, you, I include me in the you, are the corpus callosum of the Jewish people. We have a very special role here, and it's very rare, and it's very special, because you speak to both sides. You understand both sides. And Hashem has given you, and I suppose me as well, a great and vitally necessary task, which is to keep those two hemispheres in some kind of connection with one another. Without that, without you, without us, we could split apart. And that cannot happen. We cannot. It happened three times. We can't ever let it happen again. Or if I can use a slightly different image, on Shabbat, we just read of Yaakov Avinu's dream of a ladder connecting those who are firmly rooted down here on the material earth and those who live holy, head and totally in heaven. You and I are the ladder. And the thing about a ladder is people tread on it. It's not comfortable to be a ladder. Believe you me. But it happens to be necessary. Because if we are the ladder connecting those who are Mutzav Arza and those who are Magia Shemaima, then we are the bridge between heaven and earth. Now, it is really, really uncomfortable to be a bridge between heaven and earth. I remember the day I got appointed chief rabbi. Rabbi Jackson may remember this. Somebody sent me, a friend of mine from Israel, sent me a letter one hour before I was inducted saying, you haven't even been appointed and you've already upset the right wing and you've upset the left wing. You must be doing something right. <laughs> so it is an uncomfortable task, but it's a necessary one. And you will know, every bit as well as I know, that people in that position know exactly what we have to do. Now here is how the Rambam puts it. How Chazal put it, 
People in that position are ne'elavim ve'enan ovim. Shom'im cherpatam ve'enan meshivim dava. Ve'alehem akatuv omer v'haya ketzet ha'shemesh b'gvurato. You can be criticized and even insulted by the right and by the left, but you never respond. You can hear yourself denigrated, but you don't reply. And you do that often enough. You become a walking, radiating Kiddush Hashem. Kiddush Hashem is one of those things about which we say, Lefum Tzara Agra. It's hard work. It's sometimes painful, but it is the most beautiful and necessary thing we are ever, ever called on to do. Every single act, every single word that you utter, B'darchei Noam, B'darchei Shalom, heals one of the multiple fractures in the Jewish world. Fractures which go back long before we were born, for which none of us was responsible, but we are an injured people, and every kind and generous word heals one of those fractures. And that is Melechet Shemayim. That is Hashem's work down here on earth. And you, simply by being here, simply by refusing to be drawn into this, ex this extreme or that extreme, every one of you, is a walking role model of being Mekadesh Shem Shemayim. And if ever, as a result of what you do here, the Olam HaChiloni and the Olam Lochiloni, I don't know exactly the right word to use in the opposite direction, if ever the people on that side and that side were to open in love and respect to the other. The result would be the greatest Kiddush Hashem in 2,000 years of Jewish history. Because here we are in Eretz Yisrael, in Medinat Yisrael. And I don't kid myself that the Jewish future is being made in London or New York or even Los Angeles and Florida, which also has oranges and sunshine. Still, that's Galut. And the Jewish future is made here and only here in Medinat Yisrael. And hence, everything you do to heal any injury in Am Yisrael is a Kiddush Hashem She'en Kamohu. I have to tell you that sometimes when we read this week's parasha, when we read Vayivate Yaakov Levado, of Jacob, of the Jewish condition, of being left alone, and you feel we're a tiny minority of a minority, and people start wrestling with us, an unnamed adversary, and we fight back, and we limp as a result. But you know what made Yaakov Yisrael? He said to his adversary, Lo ashalechecha ki imberachtani. I am not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm going to fight with you in that extreme, and I'm going to fight with you in that extreme until you open in love with one another. Then I will retire from the scene. 
But until then, I will be Israel. Because Jews know that we always win the fight in the end. Yours is the holiest fight of them all. And you will succeed. And you will be a blessing to Am Yisrael, Bimadinat Yisrael. And a source of nachas to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the like of which you and I cannot imagine. May Hashem bless you. May Hashem May he give you repeated and renewed strength so that Hashem yivarech et amo b'shalom bimhera b'yomenu. Amen.